and welcome back to our podcast, Critical Conversations. My name is Debbie and I'm joined by Emily. We're your hosts for today. Um, we would love to introduce our guest for today and it's Brezzy from The Blizzards. The Blizzards have just re-released their hit song, Trust Me, I'm a Doctor, and have been very involved with the Heroes Aid charity. And the ICU education team have recently recorded a podcast with Brezzy, um, Where Is My Mind? And we can, and if you want to, you can check it out on Spotify or wherever listen to your podcast. So thanks again for joining us, Brezzy, and we're just going to get stuck in. So we just wanted to ask you, Brezzy, could you tell us a little bit, a bit about your experience during the pandemic? Um, yeah, I went home. I went home very early uh, to my parents because my parents are both elderly and I was like, I can work from home. And I kind of had a feeling this was a lot more serious than anyone was saying at the start. Uh, I don't know why. I suppose the I was kind of glued to what was going on in Italy and, you know, I remember you guys saying in the podcast, you just sat back and waited for that first patient to come into ICU. I was like, well, I just got to get out of here, get out of Dublin and went home um, before they locked anything down. And there's there's where I stayed till the end of the pandemic. Really, I, I cocooned my parents, which was difficult because essentially you have to cocoon as well, because there's no point in cocooning your parents if you're out and about. Yeah. Um, so I spent most of the entire lockdown um in Monagar with my family, with my mum and dad, kind of going to the shops with them, uh, not letting them leave the house. And I could work, do the podcast from home, recorded the podcast from home. And then very, very early in the pandemic, my uncle passed away, which kind of made me realise this is, this is, it was the speed of which he died. You know, he was, he he got COVID, I think on, on a Tuesday and he passed away like Wednesday morning. And it was, you know, I, I think, the idea as well, I remember my sister was kind of trying to get in and the nurse was kind of ringing her and telling her, like, you know, you just, you just he's on his own. And I like she essentially was saying, I'm his family now kind of thing. And uh, you could hear it in her voice. She was kind of a little bit overwhelmed by how fast it was all happening. So, yeah, I, I think that was the, the, the big standout moment that made me kind of realize how mad the whole thing was, was when I went to his we had his funeral on YouTube. And even even saying that out loud is the madness of it all. And the priest was saying it in Glasgow, that's where he was from. And I was out at Loch Ennell in Mullingar and I had like had my phone watching the funeral. And I was outside my 5K at the time and a guard pulls up and was like, oh, you know, wasn't being, he wasn't being mean or anything. He was like, uh, whereabouts are you living? And I said, in, in town. I said, but I'm at my uncle's funeral here. And he looked at the phone and he just looked at me and went, this is nuts, isn't it? Yeah. And, yeah, it's nuts. and then he left and came back about maybe half an hour later like with a bottle of wine and just said you know so there's those those glimmers some glimpses of humanity yeah. uh, throughout the whole thing but then uh, yeah I, I kind of knew it was serious and I, I knew I personally was going to take personal responsibility for my own actions and you know I, I, I thought that the toughest part of it was was the, the fact that there was misinformation I found that really overwhelming and then people were getting caught up with certain things that really didn't matter. And, and then, you know, there was just so much media and I just felt the whole thing was, was listen, if everyone just copped on here and just, you know, do what we're being asked. But yeah, it was immensely overwhelming. Like everybody, I, I lost the plot a few times, went out and screamed at birds in the back garden a few times. Couldn't get out of bed sometimes, but that these are normal responses. Yeah. These are healthy human responses to a pandemic. And that's what I keep telling people. 
we and shouldn't people didn't re- some people didn't realize that because they were on their own living on their own or you know was it normal for them to feel like that but lots of other people were feeling exactly the same same way yeah. and, and and i think we, it's important we don't clinicalize that or pathologicalize it you know people are going over you know we're broken i'm not we're not we're human like these are human healthy responses in fact if you were perfectly level-headed and not a bother you though i'd be more worried about that and that's that's the reality no matter what you did this this hit us all in different ways and you know and i think adam grant the kind of psychologist called it languishing was the word he used which is like the neglected child of depression that's where we just kind of felt like you didn't have the choice because you were working and you were you were you know, you were literally but doing. Way, I think sometimes we felt we were like almost lucky that we had work to go to because mm. it was uh, something for us to, you know, it was really something for us to do to focus on. I don't know what I would have done if I didn't have work either. As hard as it was, I don't know what I would have done. And it was also that unknown, I think, as well. Like we didn't know, so you're always kind of on high alert, wondering what's coming next, and mm. um, whereas. And like my partner's a teacher, and I think she, you know, like she was at home and you know trying to teach our children and you know, yeah, classes of thirty kids, and it was just. Whereas I think if you were actually out of work, out of your own profession, that must be really difficult really as well difficult. because you're you really don't know when the next surge is coming, when the you know second surge, third surge. Yeah, so like you said, the misinformation, not knowing. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think it was it was at the end of the day. I think people in. You know, I think the vast majority of Irish people were incredibly responsible and actually went, right, listen, we got to do this. But I think what happened was, I think politically communi- communication was very poor. Mm-hmm. I think it was it was slightly all over the place at times. And I think that started to frustrate people. And once you have poor communication, what happens is people fill in the gaps. If you're not giving them coherent messaging all the time, people fill in the gaps and make up their own mind. And all of a sudden, Tommy from Galway and a WhatsApp group is a qualified, you know, immunologist, you know, that's, that's what happens. So I think half, half of it is the misinformation, but also you expect leaders to be very concise with their, with their messaging. And I don't think we particularly had that, but I don't think anyone globally apart, I suppose the New Zealand and Scotland seem to be pretty on the, on the, on the kind of communication thing, but I just felt we were just all over the place at times. And, and even I'm talking more about our industry, you know, the events industry and at no stage did the events industry want to get back to work until it was safe, until we were in a position where we felt that we are vaccinated. And that's what we feel is right for us now, you know, six months ago, we didn't, but we just wanted the government to actually communicate with us and to, to, to let us know we know you exist guys yeah. um yeah it was a funny one it was as you know and i think as i said um we 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 every industry had to take responsibility for themselves and we tried to yeah um Ambrosi, could you tell us maybe how you got involved then in with heroes age yeah i think the, the idea initially came when i had this thing in my head that when we were starting to see kind of some form of getting you know, progress and we could see some form of ending, whatever it looks like, we're still not there yet. But when we kind of realized vaccinations were getting to a place where, you know, the vast majority of adults are vaccinated, I kind of thought to myself, this is probably the only time everyone's going to stop. And that's when you start to see the the wave of exhaustions and overwhelm and, you know, for for those who might have been 
you know, dealing with serious traumas and seeing them, that's, you know, and as you guys said in the podcast, you start to only realize it now. It's like, wow, I'm, I'm absolutely, I'm rinsed. You know, I'm rinsed emotionally, physically, all sorts of things. And I thought to myself, like, who's, you know, is there going to be a support network there? Like a, a counseling support network and a therapeutic support network. And I had seen some, some of the stuff Heroes Aid had done. And then I, I, I saw that it was kind of moving to kind of 20, you know, online counseling systems and stuff. So I just said to our manager, listen, let's, let's look at Trust Me I'm a Doctor for, with the orchestra. Let's see if we could, let's do something different with it. If you got the orchestra, we could rearrange it, re-record it, and we could have put it out and see what happens. And that, that was all it was. It was just like, let's, let's see if we can create some funding to provide these supports. Because some people were saying, well, that's the government's job. But if we're waiting for the government to do it, it could be another two years before we see that. Mm-hmm. two three years and and these are these are the the mo- these types of supports are needed now these are when they're needed so the bureaucracy and the all the other stuff that comes along with some sometimes government decisions and i'm not bashing government here it's just reality it's going to take them ages so here's a system that works let's use it yeah and i think it's that night for the healthcare staff like i can't speak for everybody but it's that nice kind of sense of sort of community that people want to do something for you as well like you know to really start to help which um you know, you don't always get that in healthcare. You know, you don't get. It. I think move on very quickly. I think this yeah. is the thing. I think that's what society does. Like we're, you know, I look. I, I, I mean, maybe I'm still thinking about it a lot and kind of stuck in it a lot. But I, I look, I look at where we came from, and I look at the fact that everyone on the frontline healthcare, they they stood up not knowing what it was going, like how bad or how severe or what was going to. Nobody knew, and I just think to myself we can't forget about that. We cannot just move on now and go grand. Listen, we're starting to open up again, 22nd of October, you know, nightclubs, all sorts. Let's just keep, we just can't do that. And I think sometimes in society, we move too fast and we don't realize what people did. And, and not just, you know, like I'm even talking about the lady who served me my dad's paper at eight o'clock every morning down in Centra in Mullingar, every single morning she was there, you know, and that type of stuff. You know, I, 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 as I said in the podcast, it wasn't lost to me that I had a choice to go home and sit in a room and record a podcast and still make a living from it. It wasn't, I did not take that for granted. And I think it's important nobody else does. So when you say stopping and pausing, then, um, like, I suppose, does that tie into your kind of idea, like around mindfulness, like you have this really big interest in it, in it. Can you tell us a little bit about what mindfulness is for people out there who might not have actually heard of it? I, I, I My definition of mindfulness, when people ask me, is that I just say it's the complete opposite of how we're living. That's the best way to define it. So the modern world's wants us to be mindless wants us to be disconnected from ourselves wants us to be constantly moving at a rate of knots you know wants us to be more productive all the time i want us to learn to sit in our holes and do nothing from time to time and not feel guilty about it that is what we have to do it is not sustainable we are the way we're living now is not sustainable for our minds for our bodies so and this isn't about being lazy it's not about not working or being ambitious it's about having a space in your life and day where you'd literally sit in your hole and be present. I mean, that is, 
and, and the ironic thing about that is now that's become the most difficult thing for anybody to do. If you, if I say to my mate, sit down for five minutes and do nothing, they go, geez, I couldn't do that. Yeah. Like, imagine that you cannot sit. So for me, mindfulness is like the, the, the kind of scientific or psychological definition of mindfulness is paying attention to the present moment non-judgmentally, which means nothing really. It just, it's a bit of a, one of those pious terrible terms i say step into an ice cold shower and when the water cuts the arse off you tell me are you thinking about yesterday what you have to do tomorrow no because that that's presence and being present is 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 what we got we all start to learn and i'd say like we ultimately spend most of our life chasing a life that we miss living one and that's the problem it's all here it's happening now when we're missing it and i think that is all i'm trying to teach i study it i've studied it i'm you know i'm a mindfulness therapist i work with people in the space to start to teach them to to and being present sounds simple and it doesn't sound like it would have that much impact but if you can teach somebody that skill it is game-changing that do you think it has to be taught then it's not something that I suppose it's not something that we like you say like you could have a shower or you could go for a walk some people might not realize they're being mindful when they're doing that but is there like there's a whole other kind of side to it and that they could actually learn to be more mindful if they if there's two forms there's informal and formal and your formal mindfulness is meditation and meditation is your practice to become more mindful in your everyday life essentially and then your informal is you're having your coffee the shower the walk the good conversation that's informal mindfulness we know we know that's really important but the practice of mindfulness is a skill and attentional control is a skill you gotta like it really everyone has a certain amount of it but there's now there's now a war for our attention in the modern world, and um, you, you all know what happens when there's a when something becomes a commodity, and your attention is a commodity now. Everyone's trying to fight for it. Apps, social media, anything and everybody is trying to fight for your attention. The problem is if you don't have it, you can't give it to anyone. So you can't give it to the people you love. Yeah. You know, when you are home with your children and your partners, you're just not there because you're somewhere else. Yeah. Presence is the greatest gift you can give people in the modern world. And that's that to me is what I try to teach is when you're with someone, you're with them and everyone else can go affect themselves. And that is presence. And that's what you got to learn. And Rezzy, how would you incorporate mindfulness then in your day to day life? Um, Well, I mean, I practice. I practice quite a lot. I mean, I I do it because I like it. Mm. So I, I, I do meditate quite a bit and I I. I have to, it's part of my day. It's just a routine. I don't, I'm not strict with it. If I miss it, I don't give a, I don't care. It's not like I'm trying to qualify for the meditation Olympic games. People take everything so seriously. This cannot be. Is, is your music a part of that then? Do you think? Like being yeah. Music therapy is a huge, yeah. huge part of, of, you know, even the idea of music therapy, which is where, you know, I, my, my biggest interest lies, how we can use music to be. So what's, for example, with music now, we listen to it so passively. So we, we have it on the background or we go on Spotify and there's three billion songs and we just keep flicking just like we do when we go on social media. So what I try to do is teach people, you know, think about the craft and the arts and think about how long it took that person to learn that music instrument. And then think about the person and the microphone in the studio. Imagine you're in the studio with them and you start to get really mindful when you listen to music and mm-hmm. um, and then we know, you know, even through things like Alzheimer's and, and cognitive issues, we know we've seen the research now around what, what music does to the brain. Yeah. So I'm really interested in the work. If you ever read about the, Oliver Sacks' work, like he's he's somebody, unfortunately, passed away not, not so long ago. But like his work is is really 
the thing that's inspired me most around music therapy. It's actually because within actually in COVID, we had um, a harpist that came into the unit um, and would play um, the harp. And it was it was like it was interesting, really, wasn't it? Because it was as soon as a lady came on with the harp, everybody, the noise in ICU was so high. But then all of a sudden it did make you stop. And just for that minute, just or five minutes that she was playing, you really did feel a sense of calm among staff and patients as well. Um, so and I think the patients, I mean, there's various studies on it and studies on not just uh, music, but also nature yeah. and patients and being able to see, you know, nature. I think I think I think, as I said, an awful lot of what we need already exists and is here and we're just missing it because we think there's something bigger or, you know, but really all the good stuff is here, whether it's music, whether it's nature or whether it's, you know, your pet, your partner or whatever. Yeah. And mindfulness is just teaching us not to miss it. Um, so can you tell us a little bit then about your own podcast, Where Is My Mind, and when that started and um, sort of where you're at with it now? Yeah, uh, Where Is My Mind was basically when I finished my, when I finished my master's, I kind of was going to go off and just be a mindfulness therapist and, and work with groups. And then I was like, oh, I just don't have time. And it, I wanted to make it accessible you know, and I wanted to make people understand what mindfulness actually is because it's much more than an app. And I wanted the podcast to do that. And I wanted to provide the programs for free. And that was, that's why I used the podcast, Where's My Mind. And it started as a mindfulness podcast, but now I was kind of looking at things like inequality. Uh, look, we constantly look at health systems and how health systems work. Um, and in some cases don't work. And the policies around those systems and people will go, well, what's that got to do with mindfulness of like everything? Yeah. You know, we need we need to understand how our societies work, how people are treated, how people aren't treated. I think obviously the area of the mental health system is the area I'm most interested in. And I'm, I've done a lot of podcasts around the system itself and how it works. And, you know, all I'm trying to do is 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 help people form opinion, you know, and We've had amazing people like Dr. Mike Ryan on the podcast and what, what the podcast is doing for me, it's forcing me to learn every week because I have to read up on who I'm interviewing, but also it's making me change my perception of what I thought, yeah. you know, I, one of the things around mental health, for example, is, is I'm starting to form the belief that one of the huge driving forces behind mental health is inequality and people who like you look in America, for example, access to healthcare there is, is literally unless you're wealthy you can just forget about it and you know these types of ways of thinking and in ireland for example our health our mental health system access to your waiting lists you know adults and our children and adult psychiatric units stuff like that this is stuff that interests me a lot and and how we how we how we provide more supports for vulnerable people in mental health but that's what the podcast does and you know, a lot of people don't want to listen to it because they go, it's going to be too heavy or it's going to be, it's not at all. It's not heavy. And, you know, if you want to, if you want to progress the conversation around mental health, these are the conversations you have to have. Absolutely. Yeah. And then um, what advice would you give anyone who wishes to know a bit more about mindfulness or even to start accessing it? Where would you get that information? Yeah. I mean, like there's so much depending on, on what type of person you are. If you're the science thinker, it was like, I want to know the science behind it. A lot, you, you find that a lot in Ireland, especially the, the cynics will want to know the science. So I always say read Dr. Joe Dispenza. Uh, he's a, a, a doctor, incredible. He's got a book called Evolve Your Brain or Becoming Superhuman. 
and he has studied the the impact of meditation neurologically and on the brain and the functioning of the brain and all that kind of stuff. And it's just pretty much incredible stuff. Um, he's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit overly American sometimes, you know, like you know, change your life, you know, this type of this pumping stuff which Americans love. Uh, but he's brilliant. And then if if you want to just kind of understand where mindfulness came from. A really, really good book to read is called Why Buddhism is True. Now, it's people are going to go, I don't want to read about Buddhism, but it's, it's actually, they use the matrix, the film, oh, yes. as, yeah. as the, uh, the metaphor to tell, to explain to you what actual Buddhism is. And Buddhism is not a religion. Okay. Let's be clear here. Buddhism has no direct God. Buddha, Buddhism is a way, it's a psychology, it's a philosophy. And that to me is you really want to understand the essence of mindfulness and meditation, you need to understand Buddhism because that's where it comes from. And uh, it, that doesn't go down well a lot. Sometimes people go, well, I'm out. I'm like, well, if you're that narrow-minded about it, you know, maybe you should just stick to the, yeah. you know, the whale music. But really listen, if you, the, why Buddhism is true is funny. Robert Wright is the author. It's really, really funny. It's really clever, really accessible, and makes you feel good, which I suppose is what you want from a book. Okay. We haven't started a book book club in ICU yet but that might be at the top of our list if we do yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely yeah thank you um because we've got a lot of young stuff here in ICU and um, working in this kind of high pressure environment um and do you have any positive tips that you can give anyone I suppose in any profession not just healthcare um, but in the when they're in this stressful working environment um that would help them from their day-to-day -day kind of and help them minding themselves yeah, I always say people like because I don't know anyone's subjective issues or what they're carrying um, or what else might be going on in their life. But what does help is looking at the physiology of the breath, because we know we can immediately calm people down, you know, in the certain central nervous system using the breath. And for example, the physiological sigh is a really powerful breath, which is two sharp inhales through the nose and a really long exhale through the mouth. And it's all about the exhale, because what happens when you breathe out, and exhale is your, you stimulate the vagus nerve and the vagus nerve is that, you know, you know, the response from the vagus nerve. So you're going, so it's like two sharp inhales through the nose. As long as you can make the exhale, do that three times. Measure your heart rate if you want to check how effective it is. What happens is the whole body starts to calm down. Like it offsets a set of neurons in the brain that basically is like a WhatsApp message to the central nervous system to tell it it's grand. The other one, if you're sleep, I think sleep patterns for nurses is often an issue um, is four, seven, eight breathing, which I find really effective. Or I call it the tranquilizer breath because I don't know if you're having a glass of wine, do you know that glass of wine where you can kind of feel your face get warm? You're like, oh, that's beautiful. That feeling, that's the tranquilizer breath. So you breathe in for four, you hold for seven and you breathe out for eight and you do that five or six times and you'll start to feel a little bit high. You actually will start to feel high. Always breathe in through the nose. You know, breathing, mouth breathing is a, a real is an indication of dysfunctional breathing. And so so I always say to people is the physiology of the breath, because I don't know what's going on in their mind cognitively or what they're dealing with. But if they want to get if they, if, they're, if they hit that point of overwhelm and they want to immediately calm down, use the breath. And the other thing to do is when you panic or you over, get overwhelmed, what happens is your world becomes very small. So that if you could imagine those living in caves back in the day, usually that that fear was a physical thing. It was like a snake or something. So your entire field of vision would go really narrow and just go on the snake. And that's all you could see to prepare you to do whatever you got to do. So what I say to people when you get anxious is your world gets small and comes in and you make your world 
panoramic. Literally, even with your vision, look as wide as you can with your field of vision. Stand up to it, open up to it. And, and, and I have the panoramic vision. Just don't, don't close it in. And with that, with the breaths, I find them really effective. And, you know, there's other things like tapping, you know, which we know is really effective. Uh, if you Google tapping, it's a really great way to reduce anxiety very quickly. Um, so these are all tools people can use. Like these aren't, anxiety is, um, is there to keep us alive. Yeah. You know, it's, we need to reframe it. It's, it's chronic anxiety is a pain in the whole, whole like we know that. Mm-hmm. But anxiety and stress and overwhelm is, is just, it's just a brilliant security guard just yeah. doing its job. And that's why you're all feeling probably pretty anxious right now because you should be. <laughs> it's it's like finding the right tool for yourself, isn't it? I think about, yeah. yeah. When you're in that. Yeah, moment. and what works for you? Like, and yeah. some people, yeah, you know, some people find, I do find as well with anxiety and overwhelm and stress, that's really the moments where you got to be really hyper good to your body, like drink water, eat, yeah. eat nutri- nutritious food. You know, honest to God, people go, well, what's, what's the point in that? Because, all of it contributes to your central nervous system. All of it contributes to your immune system. And usually when I get overwhelmed or stressed, I just start eating crap and start turning on myself a little bit. Um, so I, I've, I've learned not to do that. And that's what mindfulness teaches you is the awareness to know I'm turning on myself here. Well, I shouldn't do that. Yeah. yeah, I should be kind to myself right now. Yeah, great. Yeah. Well, Thank you so much for joining us today. And um, to all our listeners, we'd just like to say stay tuned for any further episodes. Okay, thanks, Rosie. Thank you, guys. Take care of yourself. Thank you, too.